Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 7th of January 2013. Newcomers, please help yourself to the website cuttingthroughthematrix.com. You'll see the other sites listed there, the official sites I have. And these all carry uh, free downloads for audio. They all carry transcripts as well in English for print up. And, and if you go into Alan Watt Sentin, sentinel.eu, you can get print ups in other languages. Remember too, that you are the audience that bring me to you. I don't bring on advertisers as guests, and uh, uh, I don't get paid from any other source. I rely upon the people who listen to me to buy the books and discs at cuttingthroughthematrix.com and donate if possible as well. So from the U.S. to Canada, remember, you can still use personal checks. You can use international postal money orders. You can use PayPal. You can send cash across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal. Remember, straight donations are really, really welcome in these inflationary times, so to speak. And what I do is I say, if you go into the website, you'll see I go through the history, the open history, at least, of the group that came out in the late 1800s, early 1900s, too, using the British Empire as a model to, to, for a world's governmental system. And it wasn't to be a hands-across-the-sea happy families and all that. It was to be uh, a new kind of world we're going to bring in where the intelligentsia that decided that they were the intelligentsia, those who ruled international financial lending systems based in London at that time in New York, would basically run the world and own all of the resources uh, uh, as food, water, everything that you use in commerce and production, and also human resources, and use academia, get them on board, train the public in the proper way, you see, to obey government, keep them pretty dumb and stupid, in other words, and they'd have this happy, happy uh, world to look after, and while they had at least problems from rebellions and so on as they went forward in this new, brave new world system. Lots of big plans. We've actually lived through quite a lot of them. They even talked about bringing on world wars to help it get through. Because through wars, you change the cultures and all uh, the conflicting sides. It doesn't matter what side you're on. Your culture is changed. And then out comes the treaties. And then comes uh, extra forces that are given permission to alter the cultures uh, that were competing with each other. That already happened in the States when groups were given the right to uh, alter the American culture and the British culture, for instance, that all flooded out of uh, Germany prior to World War II. So we're living through the aftermath of a lot of this. We're still going through some of it. And it's an old, old plan, as I say, because even before this group came out, the Royal Ministry of International Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations, the Milner Group, etc., they had already been working under different names before through the centuries to make it all happen. And uh, they pretty well got what they wanted. They have to have a uniform media that parrots all the same stuff. You have to have a unified, a unified educational system. That's been done. 
uh, across the world so that everyone gets taught the same fake uh, reality and the same indoctrination, so important. So we've lived through quite a lot of that. And plus two, since a 1970 report came out by the Club of Rome, they'd make us into a post-consumerist society, post-democratic as well. That's been done under anti-terrorism laws. And, and also under the bank crashes that were planned, of course, by the big plunderers that are, big, that are all part of this big system. So they've achieved a lot of their goals, and we're simply living through them and paying the costs of them. And most folks still haven't caught on to what's actually going on in reality. So happy to step to the website, as I say. You'll get a lot of information there, start to make you understand at least why it's happening. They used to say that, uh, you know, that um, the truth will set you free, and it's not really true at all. You, you, you're still, you might have a free mind afterwards. You'll understand everything that's going on and why it's going on, but it doesn't change the system. That's what you have to do, if you want to, that is. Most folk quite like the system because they've been socialized and domesticated. Back with more after this. I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, talking about the big system we're born into. We take it for granted because your parents don't know to tell you that it's all fake and it's actually an agenda. You're living through a script. And therefore, you, you, you never question it. Most folk never question it. Children, very young children can question it a little bit. They'll ask all awkward questions to their parents who generally can't answer them. They'll try it in school, but eventually the school drums out the questioning from them because they don't want you to know what's going on. In fact, to be a perfectly indoctrinated person, according to Jacques E. Lull, a philosopher, he said that it's essential you get your primary education. Uh, without that primary education, subsequent indoctrination will not take. In other words, in propaganda, it won't work on you. So that, that primary indoctrination is scientifically worked out so that you will not question things to any real depth again. So we're, we're in a scientifically controlled society. It used to simply be behaviorists, because behavioral psychology can be proven, as, a, as opposed to a lot of the Freudian nonsense that they put out there. The Freudian nonsense was for a different purpose and for a different uh, reason, actually. But um, behaviorism can be proved uh, by uh, empirical experiments, where anyone can test the same uh, kind of experiments using the same formula on, on people who are unsuspecting, and they'll behave in the same way that, that you expect. So behaviour certainly works. And of course, neuroscience is in it too today with neuro-linguistics uh, and so on. Termino- terminology is very, very important to brainwashing. And of course, so is the, the way that any topic is presented to the people, especially in education or through the general media and the documentaries that you watch. You can completely mislead people by, by giving them only part of a story. And that's the usual trick that's used, not the other, all the rest of the story, to let you make up your own mind. But remember, getting back to the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which was the, the, the coalition of different groups based in Britain that were speciality groups. Uh, the Milner Group was taking over the world's resources, for instance. Uh, and most of these guys who ran and set up the Royal Institute for International Affairs uh, came into Britain from other countries. And they were top money lenders and money lending families and the Curtis families and different ones. And they had a different agenda for the world. They'd use Britain, as I say, as the embryo to start up world government using the old empire. Then America was to take over their, their, their responsibility. And that was done in times really of uh, Kipling. Kipling talked quite a lot about it. He was upset 
because he thought that Britain would hold on to the main uh, power of what was to happen across the world. And, however, he accepted gracefully that they'd have to hand it over to the U.S. and even wrote a poem about it, too. But anyway, the banking boys, the banking fraternity at the end, which controls it all anyway, they, they control the military-industrial complex, they control countries through their lending to countries, they can crash countries overnight if they want to. Uh, they're the big boys, and some of the biggest banks, of course, and they run our lives. Now, Carol Quigley, who is a historian, for the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the other name used outside Britain for the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and they run in every country too. Um, he goes through in the Anglo-American establishment quite a lot of their history. He actually mentions the fact that they're behind most of the wars. He's quite proud of it. In fact, to make he thought this big goal was worthy of any means possible to make it happen. But he, he goes through the fact that eventually... Uh, the central banks will come under an umbrella with the, I, the International Monetary Fund, all set up by the same group, Council on Foreign Relations, Royal Relationship International Affairs, and they'll go under the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, you see, to run the world. Now, none of us have any say in the matter. It's all done with, they just create their own clubs, like even the G20 is a club that we didn't vote for, were even asked about, in fact. And, of course, they all work for the big bankers at the top. Well, talking about the Bank for International Settlements, it says here, uh, the European bank shares have risen following the weekend agreement on the minimum amounts of cash and easy-to-sell assets that banks have to hold because they had a meeting, you see, in Basel. I guess it ties right in with what Quigley said in the Anglo-American establishment as they raise themselves up to a power institution that is now involved in politics and social agendas. So it said that um, the previous draft two years ago said that they would have to meet new requirements by 2015. That's all banks. But they're now that's been extended to 2019. The reserves are supposed to make banks less vulnerable to lots of customers trying to withdraw their money. It's the first time there's been liquidity rules covering global banks, it says. The agreement was made by the group of banking regulators that oversees the Basel Committee. See this Basel again on banking supervision. Analysts say the rules just announced are more flexible than a draft version and that shares in the banks rose Monday morning. Barclays rose 3.8 and it gives you a list of who rose up and so on. And it says here that under the new rules, banks will have to hold enough cash and easy-to-sell assets to tide them over during a 30-day crisis. In the lead-up to the financial crisis, banks run down these reserves to dangerously low levels the last time. Regulators hoped that extra liquidity would allow banks to survive a run on them, as happened with Northern Rock in 2007. If you want your money back immediately and there's a queue around the block, hopefully the bank will be able to meet those demands, explained Brian Kaplan, editor of The Banker. That should restore confidence in the bank, and then it can restructure itself in order to get out of trouble, It doesn't, but it doesn't make banking entirely safe. Well, it doesn't do anything except protect the bankers, is what it does. Because they don't have to hold all the assets and liquidity to cover all the loans they have outstanding. Or or the deposits they have in their banks. As if a, if a bank has made bad loans on the wrong kind of people and wasn't able to collect the money, a bank will still get into trouble. But Kaplan pointed out that liquidity was not a problem for major UK banks at the moment. He says, we're making rules for the next generation. A crisis of enormity of the 2007 bank crisis only comes along once in a lifetime, I think, he told BBC. Well, he knows perfectly well as to do it. They plunder the planet at least twice a century, sometimes three. By 2019, banks will be required to hold cash and assets 
which can quickly be sold, equivalent to the amount of money they think could leave the bank during a 30-day high-stress period, net of the amount coming in. In 2015, banks will have to hold assets worth 60% of these anticipated net cash outflows. So I guess 40% ain't going to get anything, you see. And then it says here, one big change in the rules has been which assets count as easy to sell. And that's when you get into the cons, you see. And see, such company shares, corporate bonds and residential mortgages have been added to the list, which previously only included assets such as government bonds. The inclusion of mortgage-backed securities will be seen by some as odd, since these proved to be wholly liquids and unsellable in the summer of 2007, said the BBC business editor Robert Peston. Now, the fact was, what they're not mentioning in this article here, is that the banks plundered the public uh, fraudulently, it's all fraud, it's criminally uh, fraud, because they knew that the mortgages weren't, weren't worth a fraction of what they were selling them for, and banks were passing them to banks, selling them off with higher value added, and higher value added with each sale, and that's what would really cause the whole bubble in the first place, and it bust. But it's not mentioned here at all. So it's amazing how they, and they'll know most of the public have already forgotten why it all happened anyway. Anyway, banks had warned that over-stringent standards could, could reduce lending and stifle economic growth because they would be forced to hang on to funds rather than lend them out. The Bank of England Sir Governor Sir Mervyn King, who also chairs a group of regulators from 27 countries that agreed the deal, said that the phased introduction would mean the new standards would not hinder the ability of the global banking system to finance a recovery. And analysts welcomed the greater-than-expected relaxation of the rules. So... It's just better for the banks than actual facts. And it's, it's almost a like go-ahead for them to plunder us all again, which they'll do anyway, without permission. That's how you get folk into austerity, you understand? It's part of the big plan. And they've lost nothing because the, the public bailed them all out. You see, you do it, we, we bail them out, they lose nothing at all. And then another article on it too, and it says, International banking regulators agreed Sunday on the global rules meant to ensure banks keep enough cash in hand to survive future market crisis and give banks till 2019 to comply fully. It will require the banks in the future hold enough cash and assets such as equities, corporate and government bonds that can easily be sold to tide them over during an acute 30-day crisis. The body that oversees the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, which sets international rules, said Sunday. So there you get in. Now who gave them permission to set international rules? You see how it's all done quietly and just stated like facts and you accept it as facts. It's like it's, it's gravity, it's always been there. And then it says that um, the oversight's body head, Bank of England Governor Mervyn King, said as a regular has met in Basel, Switzerland, that the time frame ensures that new standards will in no way hinder the ability of global banking system to finance the recovery. The hope is that it will help prevent lenders from becoming over-reliant in future and help from central banks, which have stepped in over recent years to keep the financial system flush with cash. And uh, so it's all a joke, as I say. It's all a joke. Money's a joke anyway. It's really a joke. Complete joke. Based on nothing at all. There's, there's no backup saying, okay, here's a, here's a pound of this and, and wait for so much of this. It's all done on faith now, you see. And, uh, and, and faith comes and goes. It, it, it wanes. Uh, quite often, and things go bust. But this is the joke that they call reality for the public. We never ask any questions. Tonight, too, I'll put up a couple of links on a couple of ads that are out there, advertisements to do with uh, brain chipping, really, in the ads. 
and Cyborg. You're turning the people who use these apps on their phones into a Cyborg, just as like a kind of joke thing. But again, it's, it's, it's pushing the envelope for the youngsters, you know, the, the, the little Muppeteers out there that will soak this stuff up. I think it's just wonderful. And it's a Verizon commercial. It says, Droid DNA X-ray Sensory, it says. I'll put that up for those who want to have a little chuckle at how they brainwash the up-and-coming young group. But there's two of these ads, actually, and you can have a, you can see what they do. Now, the Council on Foreign Relations is quite interesting because that was the one, that's the main group that was set up by the Royal Institute of International Affairs to run all journalism and all newspapers across the world, all magazines, etc., etc., and to standardize all misinformation which they give out to us, you see. But this one goes on about the latest post of Obama, Mr. Hegel, and the group that are opposing him. I don't see how they can oppose him, but they can, because they've got power. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting for the Matrix, talking about the Council on Foreign Relations in an article on Chuck Hagel and his nomination to be Secretary of Defense. And uh, the CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, is meant to standardize all news. All news know to look to them and their websites and other specialists, you see, to, for, for news articles, and that's the, the way you have to write them and the way it's written in, in the CFR. They also have uh, their members, uh, journalists, embedded in all newspapers across the planet. So it's the biggest disinformation group pushing this whole world agenda. It's a vital part of it. As I see, the CFR is, it's got different functions, but this is, the main one is also to give up the thoughts to all the public, all the politicians, the advised governments across the planet, and they have their own particular agenda at work, put it that way. But now it says here, this is how they start off this article by Elliot Abrams who is not disinterested in this article. It says, During the hearings of, on Chuck Hagel's nomination to be Secretary of Defense, it's clear that the views of gay rights... And it's got a different title at the top. I actually caused in the CFR, it calls this article, Mr. Hagel and the Jews. Right? But they start it off with another taboo thing, you see. During the hearings of Chuck Hagel's nomination to the Secretary of Defense, it's clear that the views of gay rights organizations will be heard. There, the issue seems to be whether Mr. Hagel's apology for previous remarks and beliefs was sincere or motivated solely by self-interest. He had years to apologize publicly, but did so only when opposition from gay rights groups threatened his nomination. So there's the first defamation there. But in the case of allegations of anti-Semitism, Hegel has not even apologized. He's remained silent, though one can expect the usual, perhaps I didn't word that sentence as best as I might have excuse, to emerge at his hearings. The question is, what might he have to apologize for? Why would anyone think he was an anti-Semite? Here the testimony of the Jewish community that knew him best is most useful, Nebraskans. And the record seems unchallenged. Nebraskan Jewish activists and officials have said he was hostile and none, including Obama supporters and Democratic Party activists, have come forward to counter that allegation. Well, hostile to what? 
It says the flavor of accounts is given in a headline in one Jewish website called Nebraska Jewish Recall Center Chuck Hagel as unfriendly and unmovable on Israel. Didn't give a damn about the Jewish community. So being an anti-Semite has been an American and any other country comes secondly, I guess. The former editor of the Omaha Jewish Press recalled that Hegel was the only one we've heard, we've had in Nebraska who basically showed the Jewish community that he didn't give a damn about the Jewish community or any of our concerns. Another community leader commented that during his last year in office, we knew he was not going to run again. He never returned any of our calls. Hegel seems to have a, a, a thing about the Jews, as a story of, of the U.S. own Haifa also shows. During the 1980s, the U.S. Navy ships began to dock in Haifa, ultimately reaching 40 to 50 ships and 45,000 sailors a year visiting there. The Sixth Fleet asked for the USO facility and got one in 1984, and when ships were in port, 400 to 500 sailors a day would visit the USO there. When the USO budget problems risked the closure of the the facility, the Sixth Fleet uh, fought back and kept it open again until ships' uh, visits uh, declined sharply in the 1990s and the facility was shuttered. Haifa was in many ways an ideal port for U.S. Navy visitors, as a 1986 USO newsletter reflected. And it says here, from the USO newsletter, it says, Captain, uh, Commander Edward Simmons of the USS Eisenhower attributes the, abs- the remarkable absence of incidents to the response of the people here in Haifa. It's so sincere. Everything has been superb. It was just a PR thing, like a holiday thing almost. You think, this is for a naval base. This is for a naval base. So I'll skip this. It says, the Israeli who headed the USO site, uh, Jilla Garrison, was later given a prize by the US Navy for her work. There seems little doubt that the USO Haifa was immensely successful and valued. It's in that context that Hegel's 1989 effort to shut it down and his comments when doing so became problematic. A meeting with officials of the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, which sought to keep USO Haifa open, was described by Marsha Haltman of Jinsa to the Washington Free Bacon. He said to me, let the Jews pay for it. He essentially told us that if we wanted to keep the USO and Haifa often open, and when I say we, he meant the Jews, he said the Jews could pay for it. Well, maybe he was meaning the Israelis. I told him at the time that I found his comments to be anti-Semitic. So you can't get into an argument with these folk without getting slandered because were, um, the U.S. has been cutting, trying to cut back certain bases they haven't been using for years. It says that's precisely what the, the Senate Armed Services Committee should be wondering too. They ought to call as witnesses some of the Nebraska Jewish leaders who recall Hegel as a man hostile to the community and ask why they formed that conclusion. They ought to call out those who attended the USO meeting where Hegel said, let the Jews pay for it, and ask about his demeanor at that session. That the USO had budget problems is clear, but what other locations did Hegel seek to close? Did he ever suggest that the Japanese or Germans, um, emeritus or, or, or Italians pay for the USO site? Did he ever suggest that Italian Americans or Japanese Americans pay for USO facilities overseas? Did he ever try in good faith and without bigotry to, but did he do any bigotry? I mean, to work with the American Jewish community and the government of Israel to see if in fact additional private support could be found for the immensely popular Haifa site? Or did he just say, let the Jews pay for it, with a hostility called by Nebraskan Jews? Perhaps their answers, perhaps Mr. Hegel actually has no problems with the Jews, but one purpose of confirmation hearings should be to find out. So, you understand, America is very compromised. It's either American or it's not. If it's American, there's Americans' affair first. It should be their own affairs. That's it first, first and foremost. 
I see I've always gone up to inquiries over people who really have another country outside America that they give all their allegiance to. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the Matrix and an article on Chuck Hagel as well from the BBC, which is not impartial either. If you see who staffs it, all of it too. It says, the president said, Mr. Hegel knew that American leadership was indispensable, but added he would treat military action as a last resort, it says. And it says that uh, Obama's already named Chuck Hale to be his next defense secretary and counterterrorism advisor, John Brennan, to lead the CIA, but the nominations may not go so smoothly. Uh, so it says the former Nebraska Senator Hegel's fellow Republicans have accused him of being hostile to Israel and soft on Iran. And we know who the Republicans are that say it. It's neoconservatives. Mr. Brennan is also under strict scrutiny over harsh interrogation techniques used at the CIA. Both appointments must be confirmed by the Senate. Mr. Obama has just returned from a family holiday in Hawaii, said at a White House press conference that Mr. Hegel was the leader that the troops deserve. And they go on in the BBC to say this is the worst possible message, so they're really against them too, so they've got a stake in this. Mr. Obama said Mr. Hegel, 66, has been a champion of our troops as he praises independence and bipartisan approach. And then to find out what the beef is too, it says the president said Mr. Hegel knew that American leadership was indispensable, but added he would treat military action as a last resort. Mr. Obama said, most importantly, Chuck knows that war is not an abstraction. Mr. Hegel, who's a decorated uh, Vietnam War veteran, would be the first enlisted soldier to lead the Pentagon. In his remarks, Mr. Hegel said he would try to live up to standards of his predecessors as he pledged to strengthen America's alliances. Meanwhile, Mr. Brennan said he would work to ensure the CIA always reflects the liberties, freedoms, and values that we hold so dear. And I think they should say with the CIA, they should define who they are and who we hold so dear happen to be too because we were compromised at the beginning. Along with Senator John Kerry, uh, who Mr. Obama nominated last month to replace Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, Mr. Hegel and Brennan would help share the, uh, the President's second term of national security agenda. Now it says, but the choice of Mr. Hegel could prompt a Senate confirmation battle. Mr. Hegel has stoked controversy in criticizing a military strike by either the U.S. or Israel against Iran. So there's your first part of it here. He's also advocated including Iran on future peace talks in Afghanistan. Although no Republican lawmakers are threatening to block Mr. Hegel's nomination, influential senators have attacked him. Senator John McCain said he had serious concerns over the Nebraskans' positions on a range of critical national security issues, which he would raise during the Senate confirmation process. Mr. Hegel made critical remarks against the Israel lobby in the U.S. Capitol in a 2008 book by former State Department official Aaron David Miller. This is a Jewish lobby intimidates a lot of people up here. Mr. Hegel was quoted as saying, I'm a United States senator, I'm not an Israeli senator. So he's, he's saying what is, right? Top Republican Senator Lindsley Graham told CNN on Saturday or Sunday, this is an in-your-face nomination of the president to us all of who are supportive of Israel. 
And then he goes into about homophobia and all the usual stuff too, is to try and defame, defame him altogether, you see. And that's what they do, is smear campaigns, uh, in order to get this guy not eventually put into this position, obviously. Pretty standard stuff. And also tonight too, I'll put up this, this article, and it's from The Hill, and it says, Height camp reported Obama gun control proposals are extreme. And uh, they go through in this article the fact that they won't get what they're after, so they'll probably go after the psychological testing idea, which is just as dangerous, actually, because they actually want everyone in the country to get psychologically tested down the road. That's The United Nations wants that, too. So did the Frankfurt School, and that's been in the works ever since they were in business and the guys that took over from them. And that will go into all kinds of directions, not just for, for getting guns and so on, uh, once they start the, this testing. and so, so understand that psychology and psychiatry were created as socio-political tools of a particular group. They're tools of a political agenda. And, and uh, they were set up as such, in fact, to completely alter society, destroy the dominant cultures of Western countries, so that those who were pushing it could become the dominant minority themselves. And it's pretty well happened. And once they into, like Scotland, for instance, they've already got Scotland under this totalitarian system of testing all school children uh, and trying to even find if they've got bad genes and all this kind of stuff. That all came from the Frankfurt School. And you better understand what that was, and still is, because it simply blossomed into a whole bunch of other organizations. This is how they do it when it becomes too obvious who they are. So I'll put up this article here that they'll, they'll end up doing that, the psychological testing and so on, any family history of it, any pills you've been on in the past, uh, anything at all, and you won't get a firearm and you might not even get a car to drive in. It'll have a lot of ramifications, you know, uh, if this goes ahead. Also, from again, the Council on Foreign Relations, this big private organization that advises all governments and even puts in your presidents and prime ministers. And that's according to Carl Quigley again, who was their official historian for years. He said they give you your presidents and prime ministers, have since the late 1800s, he says, in his own books. He was the official historian for the group. But it says U.S. gun policy and it gives you global comparisons. It's, well, what's comparisons got? To do? They always use a comparison thing when there's nothing else to fall back on. I mean, if they were beheading people in China, should we behead them here? You see, so it's all nonsense. You can't use comparisons at all. And if the whole world was under totalitarianism and and had all the firearms confiscated, so, so you should do the same thing and, and go into the same system. No, this doesn't make any sense. These are ridiculous arguments. They're not arguments at all. Now, getting back to Scotland, how they're way ahead of most countries because they're run again by people who have a special interest in this world governmental system. It says, every Scottish teacher and people will have to adopt a greener approach and show commitment to social justice if an ambitious new report commissioned by the Scottish government is adopted. This is a big trial for a lot of European countries. Uh, this is called Learning for Sustainability, the report of the One Planet Schools Working Group, originated in a Scottish National Party uh, commitments in 2010 election manifesto to develop the concept of One Planet Schools. 
The report calls for all schools to embrace one planet living as part of a step change to making Scotland one of the first sustainable, low-carbon industrialised nations on Earth. Well, it will be because there's only about 5 million Scots left. You know, it's one of the, one of the smallest minorities on the planet. But it's a good test bed to test them out as they're all dying off. And as I said, they'd kill them off a long time ago too. Even John Stuart Mill had them on listed for that sort of H.G. Wells for extermination because they wouldn't buckle under to tyranny, you know. But anyway, and they never changed their goals, remember. But it says here that One Planet Living has probably stepped to make Scotland one of the most first sustainable low-carbon industrialized nations on Earth. Now, what they're talking about here is total communist indoctrination is what they're talking about here and communal living and everything else. This is a group which was chaired by Professor Peter Higgins, a specialist in outdoor environmental education at the University of Edinburgh's Murray House School of Education, starts from the premise that humanity is currently using 50% more resources than the planet can sustain. The usual rubbish, you see. It defines one planet living, living as ensuring that we only use resources at a rate that can be replenished and in a manner that is equitable within and between nations and generations. To achieve this, the authors of the report want to see the creation of a Scotland where learners are educated, this is indoctrinated, through their landscape and understand their environment, culture and heritage. Well, you see, they're under the EU Parliament. The EU Parliament is trying to eradicate your culture and your heritage and your history. They've said that openly and bring in a European history and culture, whatever that might be. So, and apart from that, they've already eradicated most of Scotland's culture and heritage anyway. And it says, um, where they develop a sense of place and belonging to their local, national and global community. So there you are. How can you belong to your local, national and global community? When you live in utter poverty and degradation, and that's been the agenda for years in Scotland, to bring them down, close off all manufacturing, even stop the fishing communities and everything else, and put them all on the dole and bring in the heroin. That's how we destroy cultures, folks. And it's been awfully successful. But they're not stopped with it yet. Let's just use them as an experiment as they go down uh, and evaporate. Uh, and meanwhile, indoctrinate them into seeing if the little children will grow up parroting all the, the little red book stuff. Or the green book. Same bunch, actually. Green is the sacred color of socialism or communism. Did you know that? So all the new national qualifications should be developed to reflect the agenda that are recommended. Education Scotland should develop a national strategy and evaluate the school's delivery. The Scottish Futures Trust should also make compliance a condition of funding for new school buildings, they add. So you must indoctrinate them in this system, not, not to learn to work or to find work or even create work, because they don't want that in Scotland, you see. The report rolls up three familiar elements, sustainable development education, global citizenship, and outdoor learning into a single new uh, title, Learning for Sustainability, and makes clear that the concept goes beyond green issues to include social and economic issues too. Well, exactly, because you see, the whole green agenda, again, just like the whole Freudian concept, is for social and political purposes, folks, and not for the good of the people, believe you me. It's disgusting. Total indoctrination. In a country that's, that's a mess now. By design, it's a mess by design. Wasn't, it wasn't why I was growing up, but they've made it, made it so. And also Obama administration's allowed to remain silent over drone program, it says. 
The Obama administration doesn't have to disclose the legal basis for its drone-targeted killings of program of Americans. So there you go. There's your di- diktat from the boys at the top, you see. This we can get in the Soviet system, diktats from the top. We don't have to do that. We don't have to explain anything to you. U.S. District Court Judge Colleen McMahon of New York ruling in lawsuits brought by the American Civil Liberties Union and the New York Times said she was caught in a paradoxical situation of allowing the administration to claim it was legal to kill enemies outside traditional combat zones while keeping the legal rationale secret. So they can kill anybody they want and simply keep it secret. The opinion comes months after 26 members of Congress asked Obama in a letter to consider the consequences of drone killing and explain the necessity of the program. The use of drones to shoot missiles from afar at vehicles and buildings that the nation's intelligence agency believe are being used by suspected terrorists began under the Bush administration was widened by the Obama administration to allow the targeting of American citizens. Drone strikes by the Pentagon and CIA have sparked backlashes from foreign governments and populations as the strikes often kill civilians, including women and children. In the end, however, the government's claim of national security trumped the Freedom of Information Act, according to Judge McMahon. So, everybody uh, can get knocked off these days, folks, and it's all quite legal. That's it. That's, that's their new law, you see. Now, as they bring down the populations, they still want to bring down other populations too. Remember, I've gone through the articles set out by Kissinger when he was up there as the running Nixon at the time. He was the boss as far as I'm concerned. Even growing up, I knew he was a boss. Everybody, all the foreign newspapers didn't want to talk to Nixon. They wanted to talk to Kissinger. They all knew he was a boss. And and um, he belongs to the right groups, like Bilderbergers, Council on Foreign Relations, a whole, a whole lot of them, Trilateral Commission. Anyway, he talks about bringing down the populations, especially starting with the third world countries. They're already doing it at home, by the way. That's why most folk are going sterile. But uh, they didn't tell the public that. And they won't even yet admit to it. Even with all the evidence is there, they will not admit to it. But they've been doing it through inoculations and sterilizations. Elite back sterilization safaris meet with growing resistance, it says. The Telegraph out of Calcutta, India, reports that resistance grows in India's rural areas to a government scheme deploying sterilization vans. Now, we've already got um, euthanasia vans in Holland and other countries now coming out. Britain's pushing for it big time. And, and through the hospitals to just bump you off. It's cheaper than treating you, even if you're paid into it, which they have through all your taxes or your life. And they're bringing out sterilization vans now. This is Deputy Director of India's Health Department Family Planning Division, Subodh Jeswal, said that women in rural Bihar are very conservative and it's difficult to convince them to take part in sterilization programs. But you're darn right. The article mentions that the department launched a mobile sterilization van to promote sterilization for women in the Patna district. Jeswal stated that only 200 women have been sterilized through the project. Bihar, the article goes on to say, needs rigorous family planning measures to check the unbridled growth of the population. And women rule parts if the state are very conservative. So the van has two nurses who administer the process. They try to convince women who have at least one child to opt for sterilization. So it's like China policy. They give you one child and then they sterilize you. Understand now, the upcoming countries that go into the IMF and get all the loans given to them, and all our loans too from our countries, because we, we give them grants, not loans, under the World Trade Organization, that we're still giving them to China. Can you believe that? This is their free trade deals set up by the Royal Institute of International Affairs. And, and but along with all this cash coming in, 
you know that the the shucksters at the top and the hucksters as well they all get the cash and, and of course they have no affiliation with the people below them so they'll take the cash and sterilize whoever they want and lots of cash are flown into their pockets but the people at the bottom the ones that oh you know the trash people you know the people at the bottom that Kissinger talked about in the third world they have to get sterilized According to the officials, the mobile sterilization fan was part of a government scheme attempting to motivate female sterilization. They admitted that the project has failed miserably because of conservative sentiments amongst women. There's been a sharp decline in the number of people who availed of the scheme in the last fiscal, they told the Telegraph. It says, uh, in 2010 to 2011, 10,367 women had availed of the benefits of the Ardashi Dampati Jojana in 2011-2012, only 7,700 women took advantage of the service, she stated. Now, remember, too, I read articles here uh, last year to do with the fact that they were sterilizing the people there and telling them they were doing a different kind of operation altogether. Remember that? <laughs> That's how they deal with the people. <laughs> These numbers prove that the sterilization vans are meeting with resistance from women in rural areas. And it says that the use of such mobile sterilization units is not the invention of overzealous health officials in India. It was developed by, guess who, guess who, the World Bank and the United Nations personnel worrying about population growth in developing and developed nations. So there's your big World Bank that you don't vote for, nobody did. It was set up with a big bunch that set up the United Nations, remember, at the same time. still private bank, mind you. Although we all, we all give money to it as private bank. So the bankers really want you all sterilized. The big buns at the top, the guys who own the world, they literally believe that. They talk about it. So anyway, it says that early in the 1980s, the World Bank uh, suggests using sterilization vans and camps to facilitate its sterilization policies for the third world. The 1984 World Development Report also threatens nations who are slow in implementing the bank's population policies with drastic steps, less compatible with individual choice and freedom. So there it goes. Money is a key power to everything. And that's what Quigley said, too, about the you know, the Bank for National Settlements, the World Bank and the IMF, all owned by a very elite few. Now, the music's coming in. I'll be back with more after this break. folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix, and people really don't know about their history, they don't know what happened during World War II, the big plans that were drawn up for a post-industrial world. It was the same old plan that they drew up after World War I, in fact, only they put more into it to make it happen, and part of it was called national deconstruction. What they mean by that is that they decided to destroy the dominant cultures in each country by forced migration. And uh, and uh, and they've done, done a successful job across the European countries and opening up of a welfare state to entice them to come into the countries. Britain for 40 years has been advertising it's the best place to come for welfare. Now the thing is, when you have all the folk living there, suddenly paying for lots and lots of people who come in to go on welfare, etc., uh, the cost of living goes sky high and taxes go up sky high too. 
And it only benefits the bankers that run the country now, openly. But it's happening across the whole of Europe. And it says migrants strangle France alive. It seems that migration policies of a leading country in Europe, France, are seriously changing. The country is no longer able to hold back the crowds of migrants, many of them who do not want to integrate into the social and economic life of the new home country. The upcoming radical changes for migrants were announced by French Minister, Minister Manuel Valls, it says. After a meeting on the National Immigration and Integration, French Interior Minister Manuel Valls denounced a significant change in the country's policies and says the government will reduce financial assistance to migrants, immigrants, and this reduction will be substantial. Starting March 1st next year, French immigrant benefits will be reduced by 83%, which is almost the, <laughs> the amount of taxation they're talking about putting on everybody in France. C.D. Pardot got into Russia eventually, not uh, Belgium, and uh, Putin is quite happy to have them in there. They've only got 13% tax there. It says the amount of compensation to immigrants who voluntarily want to return home will also be reduced. If earlier the, the, the government was paid 300 euros for every adult and 100 euros for every minor, in March of 2013 these amounts were reduced by 50 to 30 euros, respectively. One of the main provisions of the new immigration rules in France is the reduction of unemployment benefits. New rules will directly affect many of the immigrants who do not want to be of real assistance to the country and whose main goal is existence at the expense of Fre- the French taxpayers. Now immigrants who are EU citizens receive an allowance of €2,000 per adult and €1,000 per child. Under new policy, according to Valls, the payments were reduced to 500 to €200 Euros respectively, so they're making it less pleasant to come in and live on welfare is basically the, what this article is talking about. But um, as I say, this is all part, and it's still all part of the deconstruction process that was accepted by all the leaders of countries uh, that signed on at the United Nations Charter, and um, and they said they would they'd destroy all the, the predominant cultures in the, their countries, and using multiculturalism as well. And that's the main reason it's been happening. Plus, it benefits the bankers who end up running the country. And it benefits the United Nations because they get involved in it and the World Bank, the private World Bank, gets involved in it too. It benefits all the big boys who run the world agenda, what's called the New World Order. And, of course, it destroys the peoples who are still trying to hang on to their cultures or a country in the first place. They don't want countries anymore, you understand. They want them all reduced to basically little provinces under a world government. That's what it's down to. From Hamish Michelle from Ontario, Canada, is good night and may your God or your gods go with you.